I've been doing this work called Companions now for quite a long time, which involved a very large European project once of many millions of euros. And uh, in fact, some of these slides I've shown before, I have to admit to you. And the strange thing is, from my point of view, is that this topic of artificial companions has gone from being sort of what you might call cutting edge or, shall we say, impossibly futurist 20 years ago, to now verging on the old hat in the sense we have some versions of these and that will come up during the course of the lecture. But it's rather odd to go from sort of um, being impossibly blue sky to being slightly old hat without passing through any interesting stages in between. Uh, but anyway, that's how it goes. That's, that's, that's academic life for you. Okay, so... What the talk's about. Um, it's about agents which have the capacity for long-term conversation, conversational relationships with an owner. We're starting to get those already, as some of you are probably aware, and if you aren't, you soon will be. Um, I shall ask whether companion relationships with computers are distinctive in any way, and particularly the notion of emotion will come up, because that seems to be the kind of thing that people like to see in, as we know, in, in entities you have relationships with. I shall discuss whether any features of companion relationships that we can establish as necessary or useful, or all just matters of taste. I'm agnostic on that myself. And I'll, towards the end, I'll uh, propose semi-seriously that we might re-examine the notion of a Victorian lady's companion um, as, as a possible model for companionship. That won't be wholly serious. That's a picture a student of mine did for me, which I like. You, you probably know the, uh, you know the painting. You may even know the, uh, the animal. Okay, one thing to remember is that emotional conversations have been around for a long time. People sometimes think artificial intelligence is new and shiny, and it is. But it's also old and has been through a lot of geological phases. It's had its ups and downs, it's had its AI winters, it's had its funding cuts, it's over-promised systematically. I mean, it's been around for at least 50 years. So uh, Colby, a researcher at Stanford in the 1970s, produced an extraordinary, highly emotional conversation program that I think was the best, may still be the best conversational program in the world, programmed there 70 years ago. And many of you have heard of Eliza, probably, which is stupid and doesn't take more than five minutes of your time, if that. Uh, people played with parry all night in labs in those days when you could stay up all night and uh, were happy to talk to it. Um, this is the kind of conversation you could have with Parry. Parry is um, a version of paranoia. Parry was a paranoid, meant to be a paranoid patient in a lunatic asylum and the uh, you are the lowercase and Parry's the uppercase. You get the general idea. Parry could go on like this for hours. He never, he never ran down or went into sort of computer code or anything. Um, if you touched on a subject that Parry was paranoid about, like Italians the mafia, horses, then he'd begin to talk to you seriously and tell you all about it, whether you wanted to listen or not. And he had a lot of things he wanted to say. Um, so anyway, part of the opening message is that artificial intelligence has been around longer than many people think. That's important to grasp. That sign there was a photograph I took of a sign in the Stanford AI lab about 1971. Robot vehicle. I mean, you may think autonomous cars are about to hit the road outside your house, and they are. But there were robot vehicles roaming around the driveway of Stanford AI Lab 50 years ago, and they were bicycle wheels attached to tea trays with cameras on. But they were the fathers. That object that was behind that sign was the father of what we've got now, but it's taken 50 years. Um, how did Colby put emotion into Parry? What did that mean? Well, in his day, it was extremely simple. He had variables he called fear and anger, and they went up and down. Um, and if it went up too high, he would stop talking to you. He wouldn't talk anymore. He got to, he went away. 
Um, uh, it was a very simple sort of program, but in a funny way, rather sophisticated. It had a stack of about 6,000 patterns that it tried to match onto what you were saying to find out how to react to you. Um, it didn't have grammar or linguistics or the sorts of things that uh, linguists want to see in language programs. Um, was it a good model? I think it was very effective, and it lasted for many, many decades as a, an interesting model. You can't find it anymore. It's vanished now. But Alexa and Siri, that you may have heard of from the, the great technical providers now, um, the question is, are they any better than Parry 50 years later, except that they have a network connection to the web, and Parry didn't? Right? Alexa and Siri work because you can ask them questions, you know, who won the football game last night, and they know immediately because they go to the World Wide Web. Parry wasn't connected to anything. But as to conversational power, ooh, maybe we haven't come as far in 50 years as we think. So remembering from what all I say, that we've been able to chat freely to computers for 50 years. Um, academic research went off into a, a slightly blind alley after Barry. It went into very theoretical linguistics of exactly the kind that Parry avoided, and I think that held back progress myself. It wasn't the way I chose to go in my work. And um, there was an American competition called the Lobner Competition, which was for chatbots. You may have heard of that. Um, it gets in the news when it runs. Every year, they try to find the best chatbot of the year and give a prize of a few thousand dollars. And this strain of theory-free chatbots actually helped to bring the subject of computer conversation back into the mainstream. It was all sneered at by academics for a long time, but then chatbots began to get rather good. And of of course, Alexa and Siri are, at now, the rather better versions of those chatbots, rather than being the product of academic research and linguistics. What are companions? What companions are not? Let's start there. I don't mean um, conversational agents for specific tasks. Um, the ATIS system is the father of all, at MIT, is the father of all those airline reservation systems. I don't mean those as companions. They do one thing for you. I don't mean chatbots, which since Eliza and Parry, chatbots don't have anything to task to do. They don't know anything about you. They don't really understand anything. They just keep you talking. I mean, there are people like that. Don't get me wrong. There are people like chatbots, and it's, it's perfectly nice to spend your first drink at the cocktail party with them, but after a couple of drinks, you want to move on. Um, so, but market leaders like Alexa and Siri are not essentially different from that. Those. I don't mean robots either. Whether there's a robot attached or not is of no importance, as we'll see. What form a companion should take is, is a complicated um, issue, and we'll talk about that. Um, I can't resist this quote. You probably know it. Some of you are probably very literate people. Um, this is Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, Frankenstein was, in a sense, the first artificial companion, and very emotional, of course. Look at that. I won't read it all out. And shall each man, cried he, find a wife for his bosom, and each beast have his mate? I, I could go on. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great stuff. Uh, Frankenstein's monster wasn't quite what we had in mind for a companion these days, but it was pretty much, you know, it was digging in the same area, shall we say. Um, Mary Shelley knew what the possibilities were. So what do, I, what do I mean by companions? When I had a large-scale companions project that ended about eight, eight years ago, um, what we offered to our funders, the European Union, um, were, and I've still got the little logo in the corner of the slide there, just to sort of keep anybody from there who's here happy, um, was the idea of a, a series of intelligent and sociable companions, that, and it was driven initially by issue of the old. We'll get away from the old pretty fast, but the initial drive was that um, society is going to be 
more and more, as you know, some of you probably are in that group already, more and more populated by old people who are lonely. Um, uh, they need someone to talk to. Uh, as they occupy more of the population, there isn't going to be anyone for them to talk to because they're all old. Um, they, many will be living alone. Um, many old people in care homes spend their time shuffling photographs and rehearsing their memories, trying to remember who, which of their children is married to, who they're married to. Um, that's the sort of stuff. Um, can people like that get some benefit from a computer companion was the first question we asked. And we did quite a bit of, bit of social experimenting as well as computer building to see if we could um, get some feedback as to whether or not people actually liked talking to these things. And we found they did. Um, we found old people in Edinburgh who loved talking to Japanese toy robot dogs that pretended to play chess with them. I mean, people are very flexible. The, the barrier... The bar is in some sense low for computer companionship if people are sufficiently desperate for companionship. I mean, it's quite surprising, we found, what people can have relationships with. I mean, there's a lot of American psychological research showing that uh, people um, have feelings about their, their laptops. There's a famous experiment by Reeves and Nass um, that... Um, if, if people are allowed to criticise the software on their laptop, they're much more leery of criticising their own laptop than anybody else's. Um, they do seem to have emotional relations to their own laptops. I mean, you know, ducks, ducks follow cardboard boxes round. I mean, the bar is low. Um, this is a picture my wife drew back in the days of that project when, um, just for fun, the idea that maybe a companion should be something like a, a furry animal that could sit with you on a sofa and watch TV with you, uh, tell you about the plots when you'd forgotten, you didn't remember what happened in the last episode, um, that the companion would be, would be linked to the internet and would remind you. It, it doesn't matter what it looks like. If it's warm and wriggly, that's, and that can be arranged now. I mean, the Japanese have a wonderful line in wiggly robots. There's one called Paro, which has about 40 servo motors under a, a hairy skin. And it, it's the 40 servo motors wriggle and feel like a puppy. And they, people love that. Oh, that goes down very well. Um, distinguishing features of a companion as opposed to all the other programs you might have. It doesn't have a task. It isn't selling you an airline ticket. It doesn't have a stopping point. Maybe it could stay with you all your life. Um, it's essentially your companion. We'll come back to that. That's very important. That's an extremely important point at the end. It doesn't belong to the state or the company. Um, we'll come back to that when we talk about Alexa and the current developments of Alexa, which I think are slightly sinister. Um, it has, should have some form of appropriate relationship with you, and what we'll be talking about is what that should be. And, of course, it has these days to be an internet agent. It must be linked to the net and can find things out that you need. Uh, and, indeed, that's where all your data will be. I mean, what it knows about you will be on the internet. It won't be stored inside its furry body. Um, are these things acceptable? I touched on that already. Do you remember Tamagotchi? I mean, Tamagotchi was the little Japanese plastic $5 toy that uh, intelligent people rushed home from the office to press the button to feed it so it didn't get hungry. Because it wasn't hungry at all. It had no language. It had nothing. It was just a thing that showed up a sort of sad face on a screen unless you kept pressing the button, which meant feeding it. So, I mean, again, this is all part of the bar being low um, for... Um, acceptability and, uh, well, here, this is the best case. This is a very old picture from the BBC. Um, if you've never seen it, I'm sorry if you have. Um, it's a Japanese lady called Akino. Um, she has that floppy yellow toy there, which is, this thing is nearly 20 years old. The Japanese made this floppy thing called Primo Puel. Naming was not their strong point. And um, Primo Puel, a jabbered in ja nonsense Japanese, 
He understood, Primopul understood nothing, jabbered in Japanese, but, but Akino liked having him there. And sometimes she would leave him in another room, but felt better at home when Primopur was jabbering away in nonsense Japanese in the other room. A bit like having the radio on, but slightly better. And the, the punchline of the story is, as the BBC had it, that she found it far more comforting than her husband's shrine. So the, we talked about where we started. I mean, we, we, my team in Sheffield in those days, we did do this large project, which I won't go into. It's long, long ago. But it was a senior companion. It's still on YouTube somewhere. To reminisce about photos with people, to talk about people's photos, to try and work out who was in the photograph, what their relationships are, the sort of thing we want, thought older people would want. It had web access. Um, you, you showed pictures of your children. Um, it would learn which child was which, who was which child's sibling and so on. Um, these are my children, in fact, because you can only dare show pictures of your own children these days, don't you? Don't show anybody else's. Um, but the background assumption was not just that it would chat, but it would be building up, and we didn't get terribly far with it, but people have thought a lot about this since we stopped doing this, and this kind of thing is definitely going to be very important. Building up a life narrative for you from your photos, not just talking, but building up some narrative for you. I mean, Intelligent people, possibly like yourselves, can sit down and write an autobiography if you've got a year or two to spare. You know, write up your life for your kids, why not? What else is there to do? But most people can't do that. But they have photos, they have documents, they have lots of web data of various kinds, things they've written, letters. How nice if a companion, while talking to you for 10 years, would be building up some kind of life narrative for you, for your successors. That was definitely part of the motivation. Um, so that's quite a long time ago. We did that program. I'm just mentioning it to prove my bona fides that we, you know, I, I'm chatting to you now. But ten years ago, I had a team who were actually trying to build these things. Um, computer interfaces. Why am I shifting to that? Well, because a companion is a computer interface. It may be a wriggly seal or a warm furry toy, or it may just be in your mobile phone. But what it is is a computer interface. And I mean, that. Do you know this picture? It's a spoof. But if you've never seen it. You must see it at least once in your life. This picture was shown in 1970, and it was put out on, in a journal as a prediction of what a computer interface would look like in 2005. Okay? The fact it's a spoof becomes, became apparent to some observers when they noticed that all the controls are those of a US submarine. <laughs> which sort of gave the game away. But I did like the idea. That there is an underlying truth under the spoof, which is that uh, 50 years ago, they had no idea what a computer interface was going to be like. It's the most astonishing transformation. Um, not just that computers are now the size of our watches, but that um, we can interface with such things and don't have to deal with these vast objects the size of wardrobes. <clears throat> this is what computer interfaces look now. That's Alexa. You've probably seen this. You may have one at home. You should be worried if you have. We'll talk about that later on in the talk. But uh, you know it's always listening, don't you? And you know it's conveying everything you say to the company. They say it's for adverts, but they also say it's for training. Like those people say to you in all those calls, we may record your call for training purposes. Well, Alexa is taking everything you do for training purposes. I mean, those of you who've read 1984 know that this is exactly what 1984 was going to be like. There is going to be something in your house, watching and listening to you, and telling somebody else all the time. And what's so marvellous about the present time is we've walked into it without remembering 
that and realising what it is. Because we basically trust our companies, we basically trust our government, don't we? But isn't it extraordinary that we've walked into it? Don't you think that's odd? Isn't it worth thinking about? Alexa's like this. Um, this, is, this is how Alexa talks. Alexa's a good thing to have. I'm not knocking it. I think it's a wonderful achievement. I mean, the, um, Apple have put a fantastic amount... Sorry, it's Google, isn't it? Google have put a fantastic amount of work into it. Thousands and thousands of uncountable man-hours of work, person-hours of work have gone into this. Um, and there you are. Of course, in a sense, it's also boring. I mean, look at, look at that. It's, the, it's not how we want a companion to be, is it? Because it's the kind of person who like a computer person who talks at you and tells you stuff you don't want to know. You mention France and then the average price of accommodation. You know, probably guess not what you want. Um, they haven't got it right yet. They will. It's all going to get much better. But this is like the computer geek at the cocktail party, isn't it? Who tells you stuff they've just looked up on the web and they want to tell you. What they've seen in the paper this morning, they're going to tell you now. And they ha we haven't yet got it right. And I mean, speaking of the community, not just knocking Google. We haven't got it right to make a thing like this be like the kind of person we want to have a relationship with over a long period. Um, so we don't know how they're doing it, although we can guess. I suspect there's no deep linguistic or artificial intelligence theory behind it. Um, what it is is, I think, probably hundreds of thousands of, of man-hours of just, as it were, putting in every possible thing they can think of, you might say. It's also trying to learn from what you say to it. So some... Intellectual work is now being done in that they're trying to apply machine learning algorithms. That is the current buzzword in artificial intelligence that's moving the field forward at the moment. They are trying to apply machine learning so it can learn from everything it experiences in conversations with you know, millions of people now to future conversations. In the way that the same companies, Apple, have improved their machine translation... Sorry, Google again, I keep saying the wrong thing. Google have improved their machine translation programs the same way. The machine translation program on the web is now better simply because they've learnt from all the machine translations they've done for people who've fed back and said, no, this isn't quite right. Um, they are, in some sense, not doing it all by handwork now. They won't tell us how they do it, but I'm quite certain they're trying to move to something more intellectual than just coding in the responses. Um, but again, my point from the beginning, which is not meant to be pessimistic, is just remember how slow AI is and not how fast. It is fast. Everything is wonderful. There are huge advances are being made, but gosh, so much of it is 50 years of work. Um, it's good to remember that. What existing technologies does a companion need? Well, there's quite a few technologies that technologies it needs, and they're in different states of readiness. Um, voice recognition and generation. A perfect human voice and recognising your voice at 98% accuracy, done, done. You know that from the voices on your sat-nav. Perfect. You can have any accent you like. You want a Dublin solicitor today, somebody else tomorrow, great, all done. Um, ability to access and process information it can get in real time from the internet. That's pretty good. You know, Ask it what the cost of a rail fare is to Birmingham, it'll tell you right away. Um, ability to build a model of you, which is what I think, that I really think is the heart of the companion. Knowing about you, knowing how you are, that's what you want from something you're in a relationship with. It has a model of you, knows all about you, knows what you like and don't, knows what not to say to you. Um, pretty poor, but getting there, getting better. Um, ability to model the long course of a conversation and not say too much or too little. I just touched on that. Still pretty poor. What should a companion look like? As I said already, it doesn't matter. Worm furry toy, wriggly, wriggly pet, just your phone. Do you want a realistic talking person on your screen? Um, I don't know if you know this phrase, uncanny valley. 
it's a lovely phrase. Um, it was invented, I think, by a Japanese researcher. Uh, what he said was, this is many years ago he said this, as computer presentations of persons on screens get more and more realistic, we'll find them increasingly repulsive. It's, it's like something in quantum physics where the closer you get to the, the, uh, the nucleus, the stronger the force repelling you. It's a bit like that. Um, I don't believe a word of it myself. I think it's nonsense. But there's wide belief it's true, that as computer realizations become more like us, we get more repelled because we don't like it. We want them to be very different from us, very seal something. If it looks like us, it's worrying. Have you seen this one? This is old, too. Everything I show you is old. Look at this. Sorry if you've seen it before, but it doesn't last very long. Image Metrics is a markerless performance-driven animation company. We specialize in high-quality facial animation for video games and films. This is 10 years old. They're better now. With mocap, markers are placed all over an actor's face, and the actor is then required to perform in front of dozens of special cameras. With Image Metrics, however, there are no markers or special cameras. The actor's performance is simply recorded onto video, and the video is then analyzed by our proprietary computer vision software. Well, the actor is captured on video, and then the video is analyzed by our computer software, and the actor's performance is used to drive any facial rig. The client gets back animation curves on the rig. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> well, I think that they have a long way to go. Mm, I've seen better. It sucks. Whew. I mean, really? C can we just skip that question? They really, really are bad. Not good. Terrible. I love it when she her face goes all wrong and you re just in case you hadn't guessed. I mean, that's ten. I mentioned a company ten years ago who sold out to Hollywood. I mean, that's why you're getting such good movies now, which are wholly artificial. I think that, I ten years ago I thought that was stunning, absolutely stunning. Maybe that's how you want a companion to be. Um, do you want to have one personality or many? I mean, in your spouse, your nearest and dearest, you probably you probably like a single personality, don't you? I mean, do you feel better that way? I mean, you want them to be the same roughly at breakfast as they are at dinner, but not everybody's like that. I mean, um, do you want consistency? I mean, if, if, they're, if they're encouraging you in the gym, do you want them to be very strict, very harsh, no pain, no gain? I mean, you can imagine that you might want a whole uh, committee of personalities in your, an agency of personalities rather than an agent in your companion. Um, you might. Some days you might just want a, uh, a sidekick who laughs at your jokes. I mean, you can imagine how it might go. It's not clear to me what people want, and they will have the choice. There will be a choice about this. You can, will be able to change it in the morning when you wake up. What must the companion know? This, I think, is very important. Uh, John McCarthy was, in a sense, the founder of artificial intelligence at Stanford. He coined the phrase, and it was in his lab that Parry, that you saw at the beginning, was created. And McCarthy, who was deeply into the logical approach to artificial intelligence. Unless something had logical representations, he didn't care for it much. He didn't think it was the real thing. So Parry was anathema to him, really, because it had no logical linguistics. It was just a lot of 6,000 patterns. It matched. And McCarthy said, oh, it, it was in his lab, but he said, oh, he said, it doesn't even know who the president is. 
which in 1971 was a sort of interesting thing to say because, of course, most of the world's population didn't know who the president was, but forget that. But, of course, next morning it did know who the president was because the man that Colby put it in. But it's an interesting idea, though, that how much do you want... Uh, how much do you want um, a companion to know? One of McCarthy's great contributions was to say that he thought, and I think he's right about this one, the core of artificial intelligence is not getting a machine to know obscure things like football scores or the President of the United States or who won the game last night. That's easy. The web now makes that easy, or the fair to Birmingham. The really hard thing which artificial intelligence has not cracked at all is what's usually called general common sense knowledge. Um, this is the hardest thing of all, that we know that you push a pen off a table and it drops. I mean, how's a computer to know that? Um, I, the example I always like is the one about instructions in a phone box. You, know, you go to different countries and... When, you remember when there were phone boxes? You remember. Um, they, they used to have instructions in about um, uh, where you put the money, what the sounds are, um, how you... Yeah, basically ringing tones. They never tell you to put one end to your mouth and one end to your ear. They never tell you that, do they? Why don't they? Because you know. And that's McCarthy's point. There's so many things we just know that we find it extremely hard to express. And how would you tell a computer that? We didn't have ears anyway. I mean, he's onto something there. This is what, well, in fact, the American Defense Agency, DARPA, have just launched another gigantic multi-billion program on putting, a, putting general common sense knowledge into AI. The funders... The, the great funders of this stuff knew perfectly well that that's where the real problem is. Um, it isn't quantity either. I mean, somebody reckoned a few years ago that what are called 28 terabytes, don't worry about terabytes, they're enormous, but 28 terabytes of data would cover everything you could ever see, do, or say in your life. But that isn't a lot now. You could get that onto a relatively modest machine. So it isn't a question of quantity of knowing about you. It's, as it were, understanding what it knows about you, as opposed to just being data. Emotion. Um, I said you probably want your companion to have emotion, but the topic emotion has always been a poor relative in AI. Um, when the logicians like McCarthy were in charge for decades, um, they wouldn't hear of it. They thought that was the kind of degenerate thing that you know, lesser, lesser folk, lighter folk in AI would want to talk about. So everything's changed. Everything's changed. Um, emotion is now hot and central in AI, getting machines to sound as if they have feelings like you, feelings for you, detecting feelings in other people. You've probably read of, the, you may have read the phrase sentiment detection. Um, it's a kind of program that anybody can make up in a couple of days. It, but sentiment detection as such isn't very deep. You just look for special words in texts and assign values to them. But companies have paid untold millions of pounds over the years to have things assessed for sentiment detection. Politicians want to know automatically what the sentiment of the emails they get are. Um, companies want to know what things on their Facebook site, are they positive or negative? So emotion has become itself, emotion has become a very commercially productive um, sideline. But that's not quite what we mean here, is it? We don't mean just mean the tone of the letter, is this for me or against me, I'm a senator. We mean more, um, what is it to feel you have a relationship with something? Um, I don't know if you know the name David Levy. David Levy is a, a colleague in London who wrote a book 10 years ago called Love, Sex and Robots. Good title, got him onto all the morning chat shows and where he performed extremely well. But one, he's been one of the people who've claimed most in a most articulate way that not just about sex, but that people will be having emotional relationships with machines within another decade. And I'm sure he's right. 
He makes a very good case for this. But what should it do when it's detected your emotions? Again, this is like the choice of personality in a companion. Do you want it to sort of work you up? Do you want to make you cross? Get your dander up? Get you to rant? Calm you down? Uh, bring, you back to, bring you back to a calm state where you might rather be? Just track you. This is a kind of diagram we used to use in papers years ago. It's not as technical as it looks. Um, what it is is that a common way to divide emotions is across two dimensions, negative and positive emotions, active and passive uh, emotions. And uh, if, they can, if, they, if you are that sort of little ring, that little circle moving round, uh, should the companion, dotted circle, I mean, should the companion talk in such a way as to, as it were, move round you and try and move you back to the centre? This is not a very technical diagram, doesn't say anything very much, but you get the idea. It's a visual representation of what it might be, a companion might do to bring you down, bring you back, cheer you up, calm you down. This is the kind of thing I think we shall want from companions. This is just, the next few minutes are just a sort of frivolity. Um, do you remember, Vic you don't do, neither do I, Victorian ladies' companions. They used to exist, um, uh, there they were, um, they're for unmarried ladies. We had another lady as a chaperone and a, a companion, a, a conversationalist. Um, there's a description in 1811 of a, a poor female relation, a humble companion, a bit contemporary with... The, uh, the Frankenstein quote, really. Um, not, not a nice job to have. You only were a lady's companion if you couldn't possibly get any other kind of work. But you couldn't get any other kind of work because for women there wasn't any. We know that. Um, companion jobs still exist. Look, I pulled that off the web ten years ago. I'm a 47-year-old lady looking for positions as a companion. Um, they exist. They're probably all advertised in the lady, if that still exists. Um, but seriously for a moment, what virtues or qualities would you want in a Victorian, did they want, excuse me, in a Victorian lady's companion? Politeness, discretion, knowing their place, dependence on you, emotions firmly under control, modesty, wit, cheerfulness, well-informed, diverting, looks irrelevant, long-term relationship if possible, trustworthy, that's essential. Limited socialisation between companions permitted off duty. That's crucial. You don't want them gossiping about you behind your back. You want to ration their afternoons off and want to know where they go. Um, <clears throat> well, of course, isn't that just the list you might want in a computer companion? That seems to be a very familiar list. Trust, discretion, discretion above all. When companions share with those others, how will they know what to say or not to say? This is back to the issue of Alexa and what is Alexa doing with your conversations that it's listening to. Um, uh, one big American hotel chain has just announced proudly that it's going to abolish concierges and Alexa will be in every room. So every room in their hotels all over the States will have Alexa. Um, how discreet will she be? We don't know. Um, the Victorians were very worried about discretion in companions, so should we be. Um, a lot of interactions in the future too will be companion to companion. I mean, your companion will do talking for you to other people. When you get into a taxi, it's possible. I mean, especially if it's a foreign taxi, your companion might deal with the taxi's companion to tell them where to go and how to get there. Um, ditto restaurants, particularly in foreign languages. But, but also here at home, they'll be thinking, you'll want your companion to negotiate your change of restaurant reservation. Possibly if you're old and getting a bit forgetful to negotiate with um, inland revenue for you. That might be much better to have them deal with inland revenue than you do it. You might say something you shouldn't say about your income. Maybe the companion will be more discreet. Um, uh, there used to be, I don't know if you know the word dragoman, it's a word I'd like. I once had a project called Dragoman for this very reason. The dragoman was a Turkish concept. The dragoman, here he is, there's the dragoman. They had big trousers. Um, 
the dragoman they were usually they were they were usually muslims from europe they they spoke lots of languages but they didn't just do the languages they negotiated for you as a turk when you went to europe you didn't want to negotiate with a heathen that wasn't any fun talking to germans and, and english people the dragoman did it for you and uh, negotiated knew the languages was utterly discreet early explorers into the middle east when there were still explorers in the middle east had dragomen going with them to make sure everything was all right and they didn't get murdered um so what a, what a wonderful travel companion a dragoman would be wouldn't it a computer dragoman i mean locating restaurants well of course we have trip advisor for that but supposing it's your dragoman it's doing it all for you booking restaurants suppose it sits next to you know, foreign friends on a park bench, and it shows your photographs for you. I mean, you don't get much out of this in a way. You just get the feeling that you're having emphatic communication with the person next to you. They're looking at your photos, you're looking at theirs, and the dragoman's doing all the work. But you are, in some sense, getting something out of it. Uh, translating, of course, um, uh, very much thought, I mean, they don't use this word in uh, DARPA, but very much military applications. Um, uh, if, like America, you have bases in 130 countries, I mean, you have to deal with lots of foreigners. And you may be dealing on the field, in the field with people who don't speak English. Um, I, in some sense, you can see why the, many militaries in the world would want, would want computer companions as dragomen out there negotiating for them, uh, assessing people's trustworthiness from their voice, translating, and so on. I think you can see how useful they would be. And indeed, they are working on that, believe you me. Health-related companions, I mean, I could put anything here from snippets from the newspapers this week, couldn't I? Because in some sense, you see versions of this all the time. Um, Ugly-looking robots with screens prowling hospital wards so doctors don't have to come and talk to you. Um, some shiny, shiny thing comes and talks to you in the ward and takes your temperature and, you, you know, the doctor is left to, left to do his paperwork. Um, sorry, not paperwork, but you know what I mean. Um, there certainly will be health companions. Uh, think of all the time that they waste, certainly in America, to some extent here, um, getting you to give informed consent to what they're going to do, with, do to you. Um, we didn't used to bother with informed consent in the NHS. You just sign something with a stub of pencil and do, do to me what you like. But that is out of fashion now. And in America particularly, you have to have explained to extremely carefully what they're going to do to you so you can't say afterwards you didn't know. Think what a lot of professional time that takes from people who could do something else. Think if you had a health companion who could explain patiently to you what this procedure was going to do, what the risks were, whether you should undergo it. And then, here's the good bit, would understand, would then make an assessment whether you understood. That would be the subtle AI bit, not just that it told you things. It would make a judgment as to whether you understood what it had said to you. Isn't that nice? I mean, I think that's definitely going to come. Things will flip over. It won't be... It'll be whether they understand us. Um, yeah, you get it. Um, In-car companions, of course. I mean, the car is going to be a robot, isn't it? It's not going to have arms. It's going to have four wheels. Um, our cars are increasingly just computers on wheels. They will be our companions. They will talk to us as we drive so we don't go to sleep. We won't have to listen to CDs. They'll chat to us, tell us jokes, remind us of all kinds of things. Um, an in-car companion is an obvious thing i mean i mean i think all the big car manufacturers are thinking about this how to do it um how, how to do it best yeah, that's definitely coming that's that's clear um whether we drive or whether they're automatic cars that's definitely on the way science companion that may be a niche activity but i can imagine a lot of scientists who'd love a science companion who knew their work searched the literature for them um found out relevant lectures they could go to 
found places they could go and lecture, um, maintaining information banks, banks of references, all the things that their research assistants used to do, but who had to be paid money. And now a science companion wouldn't have to be paid money. A kitchen companion, well, yes, of course, something that teaches you how to cook, watches you cook, and then um, has cameras, can see you cook, and then when your, your faculties go downhill a bit, it then helps you make the dishes you used to be able to make but can't anymore. You can't quite remember how to make cassoulet, but it watched you make cassoulet for years. And now it knows how to make cassoulet, so it reminds you. Turn the gas off, and so on, you know, yeah. Um, Educational companions, that's so obvious. That's one that's definitely come, been coming into being slowly but surely. I mean, universities will be increasingly irrelevant. Apologies to Gresham College, which isn't really a university. Um, because, of course, what will be the point of going to university? There'll be edu well, you can already get you know, virtually all MIT's lectures on the web. I mean, they're probably better than you're going to get down the road in your city university. Um, why go there? I mean, there will be educational companions of various kinds. They're definitely on the, on the stocks in all kinds of places. And already here, there are things you can talk to just from you know, teaching algebra to 10-year-olds, if that's, that's what you want. Uh, critiques your work, helps you plan your education. I mean, that's an obvious one. That's a no-brainer, as you might say. Safeguarding their, their content. Um, we all know that losing our laptop, like losing our phone, you know, would be the end of the world. All my life's in there, you say, as you let somebody hold your laptop bag. Don't lose that. All my life's in there. I'm not backed up. Um, well, it'll be worse than that with the companion, because the companion will have your life in there. But, of course, it will be backed up in the cloud or in Google's cellars. It will, it will be there. Um, but... Protecting your content, I think we sort of know about this now because the boom of Facebook in the last decade has made this a, a central topic. Um, protecting the content from crime, governments, named individuals. Um, uh, it'll also be a bit personal, like never tell my children things. Um, uh, what, what about after you're dead? I mean, um, one way of thinking about your content is what happens to your content when you die? Well, at the moment, I mean, it's mostly obliterated. I don't think people... Um, have got into the habit yet of thinking about their computer content. But if they looked around, they're already... I, I did a survey about five years ago. There were already then lots and lots of sites that offered to do things for you at your death. Uh, they were sort of lock boxes of secrets. Oh, they would go on sending birthday cards to your children for 50 years after your death. Gru gruesome. Um, your wedding anniversary. Uh, you understand. Um, but there are very serious issues behind this. Um, a, is security in the sense of you don't want other people getting at your stuff, but you might want to, some people to get at your stuff, but not everybody. If it had formed up a narrative of your life, you might want your children to have it after you had gone. But you certainly might not want the government or the company or, indeed, as I say, certain named individuals to have it. Um, just like, you know, Thomas Hardy. Thomas Hardy's wife was caught the day after his death burning all his letters in the garden. Um, nowadays, some people uh, have, among these after-death companies, they, they ask them to guarantee that they will obliterate all their hard disks the day after they die and a signal is sent. The problem is how you let them know you're dead. That's the tricky bit. But there are ways of doing that. Um, porn and death sites. I mean, you see the range of possibilities of security and discretion. These will become very serious issues. Um, do you want it doing more after your, of your... I mean, do you want it to go on voting to remain? After you're gone, I mean, you know, I mean, there, there isn't a big electorate of the dead, but, 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 you know, I can imagine a world. I mean, there, there are cultures in which the dead are thought to have rights in Africa, certainly. I think in Japan there's a version of the dead having rights. Um, 
Yeah, well, you know, if you made your voting intentions clear. I'm not being wholly serious. I'm just trying to say that a whole range of interesting possibilities is going to open up. Um, we're almost there. Um, there are going to be many and varied artificial life companions are surely coming, and they will be much better than Alexa and Siri, but those are extraordinary, extraordinary products. I, I've said rather cynical things about them, don't get me wrong. I think my cynicism is that you know, they've taken 10 years since academic projects were doing rather more than them, but, but that's a normal commercial life cycle. Nothing to be shocked about there. They're here now, and they're doing well, and they have dangers, but governments and electorates aren't stupid. Something, something will be looked after. It's just good that we're aware of the dangers and we know where things might go wrong. Um, companions, I think, will have to be of different sorts. We'll have diff all have different needs and tastes and what we want. I mean, the, the kind of companion you're going to want on a long-range NASA voyage to Mars is going to be different from one you keep in your kitchen. I mean, there's been a lot of speculation in science fiction about what is a space companion going to be like. There will have to be space companions, you realise this, because some of the long voyages in the future in space will be much longer than the human lifetime. So although you will in principle be able to have children on the spacecraft, there needs probably to be some continuity longer than a human lifetime um, to carry out the mission and to remember. After all, if, if you had to have four generations of children on the spacecraft, the message could get garbled, couldn't it? I mean, you can see the risk. You see, if, if the, you know, the new children decided they want to turn around and go back. Well, they couldn't go back. They didn't know where they came from. I mean, it's awful. But, of course, you also know the warning because you've all seen 2001. You all know that HAL 9000, you remember, with the big red eye on the film, if you saw uh, the film, um, HAL was the voyage computer, the companion, if you like. He had a very soft, attractive voice. And, of course, HAL had his own ideas of what the mission was. And if you remember the film, the HAL's ideas were completely inconsistent with keeping the people on the ship alive. He decided, you know, the mission was important, you weren't. But still, the space companion is a very serious kind of companion and will be a reality, undoubtedly, and will be very, very interesting. I, as I said, semi-jokingly, the virtues of the Victorian companion should at least be candidates. Um, the companion shouldn't be sinister, and it needn't be. It needn't be Hal, it needn't be bad Alexa. It should be good Alexa. Um, but it should, above all, the final punchline, it should be your companion and not anybody else's, not the companies, not the states. Its loyalty is to you. Thank you.